Well, we are, if you're new with us today, we are uh, studying through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, the, the sixth book of the New Testament, Romans. And uh, today we're in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30 through 10, verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll have them open this morning. There was a, a well-known atheist in the 20th century that uh, said this. He said, if, if there is a God, there is no greater evidence for his existence than this, that the Hebrew race has survived all these thousands of years. And in chapter, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul is talking about the relationship of Israel within God's kingdom plan and purpose for the ages. You may wonder at times why it is that uh, Israel is, is always in the news, that it seems like is Israel is the center of the world. And there is a reason for that. God has a plan and a purpose for them. He chose them thousands of years ago as his own people. And uh, you may have questions about where Israel is in relationship to God, how, how Judaism relates to Christianity. And uh, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul's not going to answer every question, but he's going to speak powerfully to this question about why is it that Israel has not received Jesus as their Messiah? Why is it that they've rejected him uh, as uh, the one that God promised would come and lead Israel? And, and bring salvation. And so I hope that uh, during these weeks that we have, and especially in these three chapters, 9 through 11, that you'll tune in to uh, what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. So we are, as I said, in Romans 9, beginning at verse 30. Would you stand with me and let's read this scripture together. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
John Brandon commented last week that uh, I had bitten off quite a bit in verses 1 through 29. And I'm biting off quite a bit today in this passage. And the reason for that is they're they're complete thoughts. And I've been deliberately uh, taking it slow through Romans because there's so much here. But sometimes when you break it down too far, you miss the flow of thought. And and so today we're in another somewhat lengthy passage, um, but it's one complete thought, and, and I hope that it will make sense to you today. Last week and, and the week before that, we looked at three revealing questions out of four that Paul has been asking here in chapter 9 regarding the paradox of Israel's privilege set over against their religious prejudice. And Paul is outlining his answer to an underlying question of of how we're to make sense of Israel's unbelief in and near near total rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. So very quickly, those first three questions were, has the word of God failed? First in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 9. Has the word of God failed? Is God unfaithful to his promise? In other words, has God failed to keep his word? In uh, verses 14 to 18, the question was, is God unjust? That is, is God's hardening of some, that it talks about there, and having mercy on others, uh, is that compatible with his justice? And then in verses 19 through 29, the question, why does he still find fault? Um, who can resist his will? Is it fair of God to hold us accountable to him when he is in sovereign control of the universe and of our individual lives, when he holds all the cards and calls all the shots? Is it, uh, is it fair of him to find fault when we cannot resist his will? And I'm not going to go back and answer those questions over again today, but I would encourage you to, to listen to last week's message, and you can do that at mylpclacy.com. Uh, you can listen to all the messages there and get brought up to date. Today we come to the fourth question uh, in verses 30 to 33, which is, what shall we say then? Uh, having heard all of that, what are we to conclude? And Paul begins in, in verses 30 to 33 with this, that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, uh, Verses 30 to 33, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. As I was reading these verses uh, here, especially what Paul writes in verses 30 to 32 about the upside-down religious situation of the day, uh, a really painful memory from our honeymoon comes to mind. Um, To know me is to know that I love the game of backgammon. 
Um, may not any any backgammon players here? weren't any in the first service. None. Okay, so I'm weird, uh, but 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 I love the game. And to have known me 40 years ago uh, would be to know that I was intensely competitive, uh, not to mention skinnier and having darker hair. Um, someone had given us a backgammon game as a wedding gift, and so. Um, because I loved the game, I brought it along for us to play on our honeymoon. Um, dumb, 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 and dumber. Uh, because without a great knowledge of the game and without extensive experience playing the game, Marcy just kept winning. <laughs> without really trying very hard. And being so competitive, I just wanted to keep playing until I won, you know. But but try as I might to win, she just kept beating me handily. And it was uh, a great blow to my young, immature, newlywed male ego, and it left me in a rather snotty mood. Uh, how does that relate at all to this text? Notice what he says. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. Easy peasy. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Frustration. Without knowledge of Judaism, without ceremony, without circumcision, Quite apart from the stringent requirements of the law of Moses, Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness of God obtained it. They did it without even trying. But the Jews who spared no effort in their attempts to obtain righteousness by fanatically keeping the law did not. Why did they not obtain it? Because they were pursuing an impossible goal. They didn't pursue God's righteousness by faith, as did the Gentiles, but as if the accumulation of works of the law was the way to salvation. Try as they might, they didn't succeed. As Paul reminded us earlier in Romans 3, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You ought to memorize that verse. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Winston Churchill wrote that a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. In their fanatical pursuit of a righteousness based on strict adherence to the law of Moses, Paul said of them, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, verse 33, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, Paul weaves together two verses here from the prophet Isaiah in verse 33. In doing so, Paul affirms that it was God himself 
first of all, who, who laid down this stone over which Israel stumbled. And notice that Isaiah referred to that rock not as it, but as him. It's clear that Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, was speaking of a person, and then that person, that rock, that stone of stumbling, is Messiah Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Quoting verse 22 of Psalm 118, Jesus applied this imagery to himself in a conversation with a group of scribes and Pharisees. It's recorded in Mark 12.10, where Jesus says, Have you not read? Now, to say, have you not read to a Pharisee is a bad start to most conversations. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Paul also used the same imagery elsewhere. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, he calls his proclamation of the crucified Christ a stumbling block to Jews. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, to the churches of Galatia. Paul wrote regarding the offense, which is the same word as uh, translated stumbling stone, scandalon in the Greek, is a word from which we get our word scandal. It just means a rock that you trip over. The offense of the cross. If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, a work, the offense of the cross has been removed. Again, Paul wrote to the Galatians saying, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, if you and I could, uh, could gain a righteous standing before God by our own obedience to the law, the cross would be unnecessary. And, and what we're saying to, to, to Jesus when we attempt to earn our salvation by good works, somehow to kind of build up enough brownie points to go to heaven, we're saying to Jesus, the cross didn't matter. Um, you didn't have to endure scorn, torment, intense pain, and death. We, we can handle this, Jesus, on our own. His death would have been redundant and meaningless, but the fact that that Christ died for our sins is, in fact, proof positive that you and I can't save ourselves. And to make this humiliating confession is an intolerable offense to our human pride. It it undermines our self-righteousness. So instead of getting humble, we stumble over the stumbling stone. See, everybody has to decide how to relate to this rock that God has laid down because there it is. There he is. And there are really only two possibilities. One is to receive him for who he is, to put our trust in him, to take him as the foundation of our lives, build our lives upon this rock. And the other is to scrape our shins against him and trip and stumble and fall. We've come now to the end of chapter 9, and since we've done that, before moving on, let's, let's just review chapter 9 for a moment. Powerful chapter. Let's, let's recap Paul's answer thus far to the question, how can Israel's unbelief be explained? We would say, first of all, it's not because God is unfaithful to his promises. He has kept his word in relation to the 
Israel within Israel, the Israel of faith within the Israel of ethnicity. Secondly, it's not because he's unjust in exercising his purpose of election, neither his having mercy on some and nor hardening of others is incompatible or inconsistent with his justice. And third, it's not because God is unfair to blame Israel or hold human beings accountable. The creation should not protest the actions of the Creator. And for that matter, he has nevertheless acted in keeping with his own character and with his word through the Old Testament prophets. And fourth, Israel's failure to perceive their Messiah and to believe in him is instead because of Israel's pride, just like ours, that led them to pursue righteousness by works through keeping the law rather than by faith so that they stumbled over the cross. So Paul's first answer here is that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The second one is that they did not submit. Notice that word submit to God's righteousness. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul again reminds us that all of this weighs heavily on his own heart and mind. It's, it's not a mere intellectual matter. It's not just a theological issue that needs explaining. He's emotionally involved. Because the ones doing the stumbling are his own people, his family, his friends, his brothers and sisters. His mind is engaged, to be sure, but his heart is also breaking. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice this, don't miss this, that first of all, because Paul believes the truth about God, because he's not ashamed of the gospel, because his heart is breaking for those around him, he prays. He prays. He he pairs his heart's desire with prayer. Our prayer lives, whether we pray, what we pray, how often we pray, tends to expose what's really going on in our own hearts and minds. And some of you, like I do, have loved ones whom you long to see come to faith in Christ and be saved. Maybe they're children or parents or close friends, grandparents, grandchildren. You need to pray. You need to pray. We together as a church exist to help people find and follow Jesus. And so we need to commit ourselves as a church to prayer. Why? Because no one comes to God except through Christ. And no one comes to Christ unless the Father first draws him. And the reason that he prays, he says, is that they have a zeal for God, but it isn't matched with knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 says that zeal without knowledge is not good. And that's a complete repudiation of one of the common proverbs of our time, which says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. 
And Paul said of Israel, oh, they're sincere, all right. But they're dead wrong in what they believe. Zeal without knowledge can at least make you terribly annoying, (laughs) certainly dangerous, potentially deadly. Imagine the woman who really cares about her neighbor and to express her feelings takes her a huge bouquet of flowers, never bothering to find out that her neighbor is terribly allergic. Or imagine a a guy who sincerely believes that that drinking a bottle of poison won't actually kill him. And if he goes ahead and drinks it, he's still dead. His zeal, his sincerity didn't help him. It helped him die. And that's the deadly problem with the relativistic belief of our time that everyone has their own truth. Implicit to the word truth is the notion that there is also something called falsehood. But if we actually are foolish enough to believe that everyone's truth is equally valid, then our naivete will be shattered when we finally see that some people's truth claims prove to be false. Bring about consequences they never bargained for. Take them to places they never wanted to go. Paul wants us to understand that the problem of the Jews is that they lacked Knowledge. So why blame them if they simply didn't know? Here's why. Because their ignorance was vincible ignorance. What is vincible ignorance? It's ignorance that can be overcome. Notice what Paul is saying. For being ignorant, it's almost as if he's saying two different things here. But follow the train of his thought. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So it wasn't ultimately a matter of knowledge. It was a matter of the will. It's a matter of an insubmissive attitude toward God. They, they had zeal. They didn't lack enthusiasm, but they didn't stay ignorant because information was unavailable. They stayed ignorant because it suited them to do so. They refused to submit to God's righteousness and sought to establish their own. They're just like us. Israel should have known better and were without excuse for two simple reasons. First, because their Messiah had come. He had come. And secondly, because long before he came, over and over and over again, the law and the prophets had said in a thousand different ways and with vivid detail that he would. And where he would show up, where he would be born, who his ancestors would be, who his line of descent would be what he would be about. Everyone who knows that God is righteous and they are not naturally look around for something that might fit them to stand in God's presence. The essence of righteousness is to be in a right relationship with God. So so two possible options present themselves. The first is to attempt to establish our own righteousness, our own brand of religion, our own brand of right standing with God by our good works, by our religious activity. But it's doomed to failure because as God said through the prophet Isaiah, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
The other option is to submit to God's righteousness by receiving it from him as a free gift through simple personal faith in his son Jesus Christ. In verses uh, verses 5 to 6, Paul calls the first option the righteousness that's based on the law and the second the righteousness based on faith. Because as Paul writes in verse 4, Christ is the end, notice this, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end there is the word telos. What's he saying? He's not saying that the law is no longer binding in the sense that obeying the law pleases God. What he is saying is what he's been saying all along in this letter, that Christ has put an end to the law as a means of righteousness, as a way of earning God's favor, as a system of salvation. More than that, Paul is saying that Christ's work shows that the law as a way of righteousness is ended so that faith may now be understood as the way to righteousness. That word translated end, telos, is, can mean the completion, it can mean the fulfillment, it can mean the goal. Remember Paul said in another place that the law was a tutor, a school teacher to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for a Savior. Because as Paul writes in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. And it's a, it's a very human temptation. Listen now. It is a very human temptation to put our faith in Christ, yes, but then to hedge our bets by adding a measure of works-based righteousness into the mix. Just in case, just in case, I'll have this bank of good works I can fall back on. But with respect to our salvation, Christ and the law are incompatible alternatives. If salvation is by the law, then it is not by Christ. If salvation is by Christ, faith in Christ, then it is not by the law. And now that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has accomplished our salvation, he's eliminated any possibility of law-keeping as an alternative option. Dr. Leon Morris put this very succinctly when he said, once we grasp the decisive nature of Christ's saving work, we see the irrelevance, the irrelevance of legalism. In chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, Paul now quotes from two Old Testament passages to distinguish the righteousness based on the law from the righteousness based on faith. So the righteousness based on faith. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In verse 5, Paul's quoting from Leviticus 18.5, where God said, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And on the surface, that first reading of Leviticus 18.5, it sounds like God is presenting law-keeping as a means to salvation, doesn't it? But let's look at it again. Can, can you and I keep God's law? How are you doing at that? How's that working for you? We can't. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, told us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, if you're a professional baseball player and, and in every at-bat throughout your career you've hit a home run, that one time you finally strike out, you really struck out in relation, in relation to the law. You're done. Your career has ended, failed. So all Moses was saying to Israel in Leviticus 18.5 was this, if you, if you could obey the law at a 100% rate of perfection, which you can't, then you would receive eternal life. <laughs> and then in verses 6 to 7, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30. And really, to fully understand Paul's argument here, you have to understand the whole of the first 14 verses of the chapter, which we don't have time to go into this morning. But he, he actually only quotes from verse 14, but he's alluding to, to the whole passage. And in verses 1 and 2, just to give you a few insights, in verses 1 and 2, Moses alludes to the fact that Israel will stray from God. Israel will bring curses upon themselves. And then in verse 6, he says, the Lord, of, the Lord your God, speaking of a a future event will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. In other words, you're not talking about physical circumcision here. He's talking about something that God will do in their hearts. And then in verses 11 to 14, he says, what I'm telling you is not impossible to do. You don't have to go to heaven or over the sea to do it. So back here in Romans 10, 6 and 7, Paul's quoting verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30 to show what faith knows, which is this, that, that we don't have to do anything to receive God's righteousness. Really? Really? We don't have to do anything? He says we don't need to scale heaven because Christ has already come down from there. We don't have to climb up to where he is to, to bring him down. And we don't have to deal with our own sins and death. We don't have to go descend, he says, into the abyss. Christ already has done that for us. You see, Paul knew something, knew that something other than law-keeping was required. And God had already done it, all of it, through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son Christ. It's in verse Eight that Paul quotes verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30. But his word is very near you. His word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, the righteousness that comes as a gift of God 
through personal faith is, is neither far away nor unavailable nor unattainable. It's as close, he says, as your own mouth in your own heart. And what is that word that is near you? It is first a two-part truth that must be known. And the first is that Jesus is Lord. The Greek word Paul uses for Lord here is kurios. And in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word was the translation for God's personal name in Hebrew, Yahweh, I am, the eternal one. To say that Jesus is kurios is to say, to declare, to affirm that, that he's God and is secondly to acknowledge then, because he's God, his supreme authority over all creation. The second part of that two-part truth has to do with Jesus' work. God raised him from the dead. And so we believe that he died. We believe that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ for all of our sin. He indicated that acceptance by raising him from the dead. You know, there are so many religions, aren't there, that, in which the operative word is do. Do this, do that, do more, do more, do more. And some of those religions have the audacity to attach the word Christian to themselves. And they teach that it's through endless, unrelenting effort that you enter into a right relationship with God. It's through endless, unrelenting effort that you stay there in that right relationship with God. But in biblical Christianity, the operative word is not do, but done. Everything that's necessary for our eternal salvation has been done. It's been accomplished. That's why Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished. And so Paul concludes with this simple yet powerful statement, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, not might be, you have a chance of being, but you will be saved. And I think Paul would say that confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart are not separate actions. They are two sides of the same coin of real faith. They, they both mean to profess faith in Christ. The mouth speaks what the heart believes. Jesus said it is out, the, out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. What's in your heart is constantly coming out of your mouth. So this morning I'd like to invite you, encourage you, plead with you to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Paul concludes here in verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justified and saved are essentially the same expression. He's talking about that decision, that that transaction that takes place in your heart and mind regarding the stumbling stone, Jesus, that leads to your salvation.
my prayer for you this morning, my, my heart's desire for you, is that you might know Christ and be saved by him. You can't save yourself. He's the only Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it speaks to us. And Lord, we, uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters in, the, in Israel, the Jews, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that you would soften their hearts, tenderize their hearts, that they would see Jesus as their Messiah and, and reach out to him, believe in him, and find him as their Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.